Does anyone have the time which you will swear by, Greenwich Mean Time or anything? Um, because I want to give. Huh? 5.36. Well, I think we should begin. Um, first of all, I want to welcome all of you on behalf of the Department of Religion. And thank you for coming. My name is Melvin Peters. I'm one of the professors in the Department of Religion. The talk today is sponsored by the Barney Jones Endowment Fund. Barney Jones was a popular member of the Duke community from the late 50s to the early 80s, serving successively as university chaplain, assistant freshman dean, and faculty member in the Department of Religion until his retirement in 1983. The endowment established in his name by former <coughs> students and friends in 1985 was specifically targeted to support the study of religion in America and, in that connection, has underwritten the appearance of a number of lecturers in the last several years. Among these were, not necessarily in order of importance, Martin Marty of Chicago, Donald Matthews of UNC, Nell Paint of Princeton, Sherman Jackson of Michigan, and Ann Taves of Claremont, and even Imam Warikin Muhammad. And I don't know where his locus would be. Today's speaker then continues that tradition, and we are pleased to welcome him. He comes to us from the Distinguished Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard, where he holds the title Professor of Anthropology and of African and African American Studies. He is quite a polymathic scholar with broad international interests. Although his formal degrees and many of his publications are in anthropology, he has shown a sustained research interest in religion as evidenced by the titles of his most recent books, Black Atlantic Religion, Tradition, Transnationalism, and Matriarchy in the Afro-Brazilian Candomblé, and Sex and the Empire That Is No More, Gender and Politics in Oyo Yoruba Religion. I mined his CV a little bit and found that there's a forthcoming publication bearing the title An African Empire in America, The Rise of Yoruba Religion in the United States. I suspect then that his talk today, An African Empire in the Americas, Transnational Yoruba Religion and the Twilight of Andersonian Teleology, which I suspect he will explain to you in due course, will reflect some of the insights and his current thinking in this matter. Now, I've already taken more time than I hoped, um, and I believe that introductions should simply be cryptic and the introducer should get out of the way, so I will. In addition to English, then, our speaker is fluent in Yoruba, Spanish, French, and Portuguese, and we are delighted to welcome Professor, he tells me he prefers now, all his friends call him Randy, but it's Laurent Mattery to do. Thank you for your kind words, and thank you for all of your presence here. It is a beautiful day outside in, uh, in Durham, which it's not in Cambridge, so you all are, are the beneficiaries of a great gift out here and hopefully not too much punishment in here. Thank you very much for coming over from the anthropology department, my friend Charlie Pio, and for coming over from, uh, from UNC Chapel Hill, my old student and now my teacher, Jelaine Schmidt, and my Lisa Lindsay, who's done seminal work in this area as well. I'm very grateful for, to, to the Department of Religion for this invitation because it provides the excuse 
to, uh, to finish a long overdue article uh, whose previous title was cited. Uh, the title has changed to, uh, to what I now call The Many Who Dance in Me on the Plural and Transnational Nature of the Afro-Atlantic Self. And just as every introduction should be, that title is a bit cryptic, but I hope to make it evident to you. Now, it's been difficult to shorten this talk. You have truly put me through a trial. No thanks for that. But uh, I hope to limit this to uh, a sufficiently short length to hear feedback from you and, uh, and help me get it right where I got it wrong. So uh, in her memoir, The Altar of My Soul, Santeria Priestess Marta Moreno Vega describes the multinational score of beings convergence as much within her body as upon her domestic altars makes up her soul. Among my ancestral spirit angels, she reports, are the native Indians of the Caribbean, the Moors, the Congos, and the Yoruba of Africa, gypsies and Europeans from Spain and the Caribbean. Though Vega herself is a New York-born Afro-Puerto Rican, her main form of devotion, that is Santeria or Ocha, originated as a specifically Cuban form of devotion to the gods, or Urisha, in what is now Yoruba land in West Africa. Brazil hosts similar religions called Umbanda and Candomblé. Haiti has Vodou, Trinidad and Tobago has Xangô, and Cuba hosts not only Santeria, but Palomayombe and Abacua. What these and many other Afro-Atlantic religions share is the consciousness that multiple beings who usually originate in faraway places inhabit, hover around, and periodically take control over the body, displacing the consciousness of the worker. In some, these are religions of spirit possession, and they assume a logic of personhood, geography, and history at odds with the recent conviction in the academy that transnationalism is new and that it is driven primarily by the invisible hand of capitalism. Now, they say you should only make three points within a lecture, lest your audience forget them all. I apologize, I have to make four, three of which will really be prefatory, and the fourth is the heartland of what I do as an anthropologist. But let me lay them out as skeletally as possible for you so that I don't lose you. The first point is that transnationalism is not new, and that the term globalization is an exaggeration. Simple enough. The second is that religions are typically, or perhaps essentially, transnational. And in a department of religion, I expect lots of feedback on that question, hopefully critical and pulling no punches. Third, much current thinking about transnationalism and globalization is itself religious in its conceptualization and its language. But its main inspiration seems to be the eschatological religions, which hardly represent the full scope of human subjectivity in, in the face of translocal movement of people, ideas, and goods. The fourth, the fourth point is the ethnographic and disciplinary core of this presentation. That is, a careful consideration of religion, particularly of non-eschatological, spirit-possession religions, will, I think, require a major rethinking of current notions of transnationalism. That is, we must understand the shape of transnationalism not just in terms of the material technologies that make it possible, but also in terms of the culture-specific ontologies and cartographies that make it thinkable and doable. 
in Brazil, Cuba, and Haiti, and their extensive spheres of spiritual influence across the Americas, worshipers expressly identify each of their African gods and spirits as members of one nation or another, such as Lukumi, Ketu, Nago, Ijesha, Congo, Mayombe, Jeji, Rada, Arara, and so forth. Each of these nations unites an African ethnic group and its spirit protectors with their American-born descendants and counterparts. In these, it is these spirit protectors and their worshipers who have sustained such transatlantic nations for the century and a half since the end of the slave trade. And it is with no apology, expectation of correction, or sense of rivalry that the devotees of these diasporic nations, of these diasporic networks, call themselves nations. Devotee's defiance of the nation-state's pretension to monopolize that term and to monopolize the loyalty of its citizens is purely casual. It is not that Afro-Cubans devote themselves to the Lukumis nation instead of the Cuban nation, or that Afro-Brazilians love the Ketu nation rather than Brazil. Instead, devotees have, since about the same time that the transnational inspiration to set up territorial nation-states proliferated in itself, understood themselves as the simultaneous inhabitants of multiple nations, some territorial and some transoceanic. Or, in terms more faithful to the Afro-Atlantic religious ontologies that I know, they understand that beings of multiple nations inhabit the worshiper, and that adequate communication with the distant heartlands of both the African diasporic nations and the American host nation is a precondition to the worshiper's health, good fortune, and personal integrity. This essay began with simultaneous requests from the Duke Department of Religion and my UCSD colleague, Tom Shortish, to offer my thoughts on globalization and religion. My reply proceeds from the observation that social scientists who specialize in the bongo bongo often generalize in very different ways about what's going on in the whole world from people who specialize in the zunga zunga. I happen to study the bongo bongo but I want to hear from Zunga Zunga too. To put it bluntly, a decade and a half of hoopla over what theorists describe as the qualitatively unprecedented transnationalism or globalization has left me, like Caribbeanist anthropologist Sidney Mims and Africanist historian Frederick Cooper, wondering what all the fuss is all about. My own subject of study the Afro-Atlantic spirit possession religions recommends a more careful look at the relationship among ontology, consciousness, and geography than current Euro-Americanist and Asianist theorists of the transnational have so far demonstrated in my view. My objective, then, is a revised sense of transnationalism and globalization that is more attentive not only to the African diaspora, but to the culture and class-specific notions of personhood, geography, and history that inform all such theories. My first prefatory point is that today's transnationalism and globalization are instances of an old but still finite phenomenon. Millennia before the terms transnationalism and globalization took the academy by storm, the Buddhist missionaries dispersed, Buddhist missionaries dispersed Buddhism across South Asia, the Greeks carried their gods around the Mediterranean and Central Europe, and the Romans established correlations between their gods and those of the, of the hundreds of thousands of colonized. For millennia, Christians and Muslims have spread their faith through conquest, trade, and neighborliness. 
From the 17th century onward, the Aryo Yoruba people spread their Orisha gods through the imperial conquest of the multi-ethnic savannas of the Bight of Benin in West Africa. And since the beginning of the 19th century, those same gods have massively colonized Brazil, Cuba, Trinidad and Tobago, and Haiti through the efforts of African captives, as well as free indentured laborers, pilgrims, and traders who have, by the thousands, crisscrossed the Atlantic up until the present. Since the mid-20th century, Cuban labor migrants and political exiles have carried what they call the Orichas to the US and, and Puerto Rico, to Mexico, Venezuela, Colombia, and beyond. For millennia, such itinerant worshipers have created translocal pilgrimage routes and translocal communities, few of which respected the emergent boundaries of territorial nation states. Yet these transatlantic and Pan-American routes and communities follow a long history of precedence in the smaller scale local pilgrimage routes and sacred communities that have crisscrossed subcontinents and continents since time immemorial. Perhaps more than scholars of, say, state politics or business administration, scholars of religion must be tempted to ask whether the theorists of transnationalism and globalization have discovered a qualitatively new phenomenon, or simply a new term for an old phenomenon that they had never noticed before. Or to put it another way, to whom are these transnational phenomena and ways of thinking a new discovery? The recent discovery of transnationalism, or what has, with great exaggeration, been called globalization, actually turns out, like the so-called discovery of America, to be a rediscovery. Before the terms transnationalism and globalization became shibboleths in the academy, we had diaspora, pilgrimage, imperialism, cultural imperialism, syncretism, the circum-Mediterranean world, and so forth. Theorists of the nation as an imagined community and of what is represented as its transnational sequel, tend to imagine world history in stages driven by the advance of capitalism, particularly in terms of the technological speed up of transportation, migration, and communication that capitalism requires for its continued profitability. In one stage, empires or religions allegedly monopolized or dominated our imagination of the communities to which we belong. In the next stage, territorial nations monopolized or dominated our sense of community. And these imaginations are now giving way to transnational imagined communities. The audience is led to assume then, rather than being shown any evidence, that the past was devoid of such colossal types and degrees of translocalism, and or that history has been a linear march toward ever-increasing degrees of interaction among everybody everywhere the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, of the Silk Road, of Islamic civilization, and the globalized African civilization that has flourished since the 16th century takeoff of the Atlantic slave trade disappear into a homogeneous past of cultural localism and social stasis. Conversely, the nation state, until its recent disruption, is credited with a degree of autonomy, control over its territory, and completeness of citizen loyalty that was in fact rare even in the most exemplary of nation states, France, England, and the United States. Different nations have, to different degrees, always been permeable to various translocal forces. And the permeability of each nation to any given translocal force has changed over time, often in nonlinear, vacillating ways. Territorial index, territorially indexed barriers to the free flow of people, ideas, and goods have always fallen and risen over time no less along the Silk Road than along the borders of the United States. 
Different nations have always provided different degrees of service and inspired different degrees of loyalty and dependency from their citizens. Likewise, different races, genders, classes, ethnic groups, and religions within any given nation state have long varied in the degree to which the territorial nation was, for them, a central constituent of political identity and a reliable source of material support or emotional affirmation. Nor, contrary to Andersonian and post-Andersonian historical teleologies, is it clear that imagined communities of religious and imperial inspiration withered into insignificance with the rise of the nation-state, or that the nation-state is, in turn, withering amid the reported proliferation of, of transnational communities. That is not to say that nothing changes when religions are dispersed across wider translocal spaces, or that the current state of the world economy has left the religions that I study unaffected. It is instead to assert that we have more to lose than to gain by assuming that some recent qualitative break or rupture in history renders the lessons of today's transnational connections inapplicable to the long and long distance cultural history that preceded that alleged break. It is not the case that collective identities were once all and entirely territorial and are now all and entirely deterritorialized. Nor is it obvious that the class and region-specific ways in which time and space are being compressed are more interested than the ways, the places, and the moments when the movement of people, ideas, goods, and money are being blocked, bounded, and regulated more efficiently now than they were 500 years ago. The second prefatory point in present company is a provisional one, is that religion is perhaps inherently transnational. The point is both definitional, or rather, it, both definitional and empirical, or rather, it manifests the dialectical relationship between the definitions that intellectuals give to phenomena and the way that those phenomena subsequently take shape in the world. For example, Talal Assad wrote a book in 1993 called Genealogies of Religion, in which he argued that the concept religion as we know it today was a product of 17th century European efforts to separate the church from the state and also a product of the European age of exploration, in which uh, 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 many European intellectuals were inspired to compare what they constructed as comparable religions to each other, and to look only for phenomena that were comparable across those religions. Likewise, religion shaped up as something that appeared to be distant from the administrative functions of the state. Criminal law, for example, or rules of commerce seemed alien to what they were comfortable calling religion. Peter Bayer, in his 2006 Religions and Global Society, makes the additional point that however novel this definition was, however inapplicable it was to what local populations in the 16th century thought of as the contours of their sacred practices, it became an important part of a global religious ordering, such that religions that encountered each other and states that encountered religions expected them to confine their purview to certain areas of operation, to certain areas of discussion. So in consequence of this 17th century definition, various religions around the globe have come to assume an institutional place confined to a similar set of functions and concerns. Now, this might be true. I doubt, however, that this confinement happens globally. It seems more evident to me that different nation states treat religions differently 
and expect different sorts of conformity to rules that, are, that they are able to confine through their regulation of economies and through their regulations of political activities. Different nation states treat, treat religions differently. Moreover, few nation states behave toward all the religions under their authority in the same way. Bayer adds that the recent interaction among religions has caused them to define themselves and each other in comparable terms. Now, to my mind, to the extent that this is true, it's not clear to me that all religions now regard themselves as comparable to each other. Uh, that is to say that, for example, the Abrahamic religions are much more inclined to regard each other as comparable than any of them is to regard, say, Wicca as comparable to them, or the African possession religions, or, uh, uh, and so forth, to them. So there is a degree to which certain religions have come to define themselves as comparable to each other, but certain other religions and relationships among religions uh, are not designed around comparability, but around distinction. Uh, moreover, to the extent that it's true that the religious encounter has shaped all religions to uh, uh, operate either in identification with each other or in opposition to each other, I don't think this began in any of the various periods that are defined typically as the period of globalization, whether it's from the, fifth, the 15th century onward or from 1974 onward or from the 1980s onward. It certainly didn't begin with the rise of European global power. It's been going on for some time. Now, despite my somewhat serious quibbles with Assad and Bayer's contribution, they leave me with a question that I try to take very seriously here and that I do take seriously. That is, how have the dispersion of any given religion, its interaction with the priorities of diverse nation states, and its interaction with an increasing array of religions altered its practice? My answer, though, begins with an empirical observation that Assad and Bayer's dialectics remain, to my mind, but a, a partial explanation of. In general, religions are, to my view, among the most widespread and institutional ways in which people employ the image and reality of faraway places and times as models of underlying ideal or superpowered realities. Let me repeat that. Religions are among the most widespread institutional ways in which people employ the image of faraway places and times as metaphors of the underlying ideal or superpowered realities that guide their lives. The populations that share a commitment to any given faraway place and time form cultic communities that subdivide, crisscross, and encompass the nation state and other territorial communities. Indeed, the mythically charted distance between the other place and the worshiper's present place tends to be the main road and center point of a spiritual map that encompasses whole worlds, the whole supralocal world. The other place might be the Olympus of the ancient Greeks, the Guinea of Haitian Vaudouisant, the Israel and the heaven of Abraham's followers, which in the visualization of American Christians tends to feature Greco-Roman imagery. The Mecca of the Muslims, the Africa of Brazilian Candomblesistas and Cuban Santeros, and so forth. It should be added that the imagery of the other place regularly conflates otherness of place with otherness of time and with otherness of horizontal plane. 
otherness of place, time, and horizontal plane are mixed metaphors, as it were, and single <coughs> symbolic geography furnished with the alien language, landscape, sartorial style, defunct currencies, bodily gestures, houses, and interior de de decoration that distinguish this world from the other. While the supreme agents of this encompassing order are in many religions regarded as imminent within us, they also usually wear their difference from us on their archaic foreign tailored robes. As Godfrey Leonhardt and Fitzcomer have observed, what contemporary Westerners tend to regard as feelings or mere temporary temperatures of the self are represented in many African religions as passiones, as immaterial but visibly foreign beings penetrating the body. Health and ritual order then depend not simply on the existence of a faraway other place, but on managing the arrival, presence, and departure of its personnel and powers. On these matters, I suspect that African religions are speaking more superlatively and geographically about phenomena that English speakers also address intermittently as epiphany, filling with the Holy Spirit, the descent of the Spirit, being lifted up, calling, and even conscience. And now my third prefatory point that transnationalism theory is essentially religious. On this matter, I must be even briefer for the lack of time. There are indeed times when the theories of transnationalism and globalization themselves seem religious, and not just because they seek to comprehend our transactions with other places. The dominant theories of transnationalism and globalization also tend to be monothetic, if not monotheistic, in the autonomous transcendent power they attribute to capitalism. Even their millennial language, what we are witnessing is, what we see is, speaks the language of visionary prophets. New, new, new is a drumbeat one hears over and over again as if a new dispensation were coming. All things that we knew before being swept away. I'm serious, that's how I hear it regularly. Do you? Like the prophets of Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Marxism, the prophets of transnationalism, the prophecies of trans, yes, the prophets of transnationalism and globalization preach of an inexorable historical march toward an explosive end never before seen by mankind. They offer a linear rather than say a cyclical vision of how the world changes over time. These models propose that only one order of communal imagination, in effect one god to extrapolate from Durkheim, can reign at a time, in contrast to the view that people can opportunistically imagine and enact several different sacred communities, religious, imperial, national, or transnational, over the course of any given day or any given life. Also like the avowed prophets of monotheism, the prophets of globalization and transnationalism imagine a force that will ultimately encompass everything at every place. Yet, like expressly religious prophecies, the world changes predicted by our academic prophets often address a region, class, race, and religion-specific fraction of the world that is far narrower than they are inclined to realize or than their audiences typically do. So this is my central ethnographic question. What might the Yoruba Atlantic religions teach us about transnationalism? Or more broadly, 
What would a theory of transnationalism and globalization look like if equally inspired by the ontology, historical consciousness, and geography implicit in polytheism, in spirit possession? What might the Yoruba-affiliated religions teach us to put it in Andersonian terms about the imagination of communities, local and dispersed? Much in keeping with Bayer's observation about religions and globalization, Yoruba religion is a product of a vibrant interaction among the populations of the Gulf of Guinea, among their dispersed canon admirers around the Atlantic perimeter, and, around, and among the university scholars and nationalist folklorists who have interpreted this set of traditions in the service of their own projects. Yoruba religion did not exist before such massive interactions among people. Like Hinduism, Yoruba religion did not have a unitary name for itself until transnational traders, travelers, and scholars chose to identify it as a single religion comparable to and in contrast to the Abrahamic religions. Yet the gods worshiped and the protocols of their worship continue to vary across what is now Yoruba land. However, the rapid expansion of the Oya Empire starting in the late 17th century <coughs> and its use of certain categories of priests as provincial viceroys spread a relatively homogeneous set of gods, Odisha, and their affiliated practices across approximately half of present-day Yoruba land in Nigeria, as well as the kingdom of Dahomey in present-day People's Republic of Benin. The Atlantic slave trade carried tens of thousands of Odisha worshipers to Brazil, Cuba, Trinidad, and the United States. But then thousands of African captives and freedmen in the New World went back to Africa or traveled back and forth for various reasons. Some were deported from American countries for rebelling. Some engaged in transatlantic pilgrimage. Some in legitimate circumatlantic trade or international conferences of Odisha worshipers. All of these movements have increased the contacts among Odisha worshipers from these various countries and engaged them in an ongoing mutually transformative dialogue since the early 19th century. West Africans represent the Odisha variously as ancestral lineage spirits, local spirits, city-state founders, heroes, masters of particular substances such as iron or of natural phenomena like thunder and lightning or wind and storm. The Brazilian Odishais or the Spanish-American Odichas and the Anglo-American Orishas have much in common with their West African counterparts. In the Americas, the gods remain larger-than-life anthropomorphic beings who personify the virtues and deficits, the problem-solving and problem-causing disposition of particular types of people. On both sides of the Atlantic, these divinities are the focus of magnificent religions of music, blood sacrifice, divination, healing, and dance. Dances, rhythms, and songs induce the worshiper to embody the feelings and complexities of these multiple beings who personify the social and physical universe. Deftly executed, the right songs and rhythms can induce one of those beings to come to the fore and take over the dancer's body, displacing her consciousness for a time. Yet the radical bodily transformations that occur at the height of sacred dance also underline the fact that these spirit beings coexist and subtly interact in every human healthy and prosperous life. 